Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I'd like to thank everyone who has supported us at Spiked. It's thanks to those of you who make donations and purchases from the Spiked shop that we've been able to reach more people than ever with our pro-freedom, pro-democracy journalism. The best and most direct way to support Spiked is by making a donation. All donations, large and small, are fantastic. And regular monthly donations are even better. To make a one-off or a monthly donation, go to spiked-online.com and hit the red button in the top right corner. Any support you can give us will make a huge difference. So thank you. Now, on with the Spiked podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me we have Spiked's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the Iowa caucuses social media censorship, and the white women who pay thousands of dollars to be told that they're racist. Donald Trump is rather predictably delighting in what's happening in Iowa. Great state of confusion, formerly known as Iowa. This is not a good night for democracy. I think they ought to get it together and release all of the data. And when those results are announced, we're going to be doing very, very well here. We are going on to New Hampshire victorious. The Democratic Party's Iowa caucuses took place this week and they were a total disaster. The party had to delay the results due to quality control checks. There were technological failures with a new app, but also human errors, with many caucus leaders struggling to follow the fiendishly complex rules on reporting the results. At the time of recording, we have 97% of the results. Pete Buttigieg is narrowly beating Bernie Sanders in terms of state delegate equivalents, the deciding factor, but Bernie Sanders is winning the popular vote. What a mess it's been. Tom, do you want to Tell us a bit about it. No, it was utterly farcical and just kind of watching it unfurl <laughs> across <laughs> social media and in the media was just absolutely fascinating. You know, just the amount of incompetence on show. Now, as people know, by this point, there was this um, new kind of online app-based system through which the various different precincts were going to be filing their results. And that just completely blew up in their faces. It's a little unclear as to why that happened. They're expecting the results on the night of the caucuses. That didn't come through. Even well into the next day, people Mm. were kind of none the wiser. There was this kind of press conference called where someone from the Iowa Democratic Party was supposed to address people and he was 20 minutes late to that. And it was just, it just became this kind of running joke basically and as you say as we're recording now you know there's even some reporting in the new york times that the results that we do have there might be inconsistencies within the data itself so it's become an absolute farce it's kind of written Trump's script for him, as Sean Collins points out on Spike this week, insofar as you've got a party who've been banging on about Russia hacking elections and how weak and vulnerable the democratic system is in the US and they can't even count votes in a caucus in a primary. So that's pretty ridiculous. Um, But I think it's also interesting looking at the result that does seem to be appearing, which is basically Bernie and Buttigieg kind of Mm. neck and neck, Mayor Pete really not necessarily someone who people expected to do particularly well um, yeah. at Iowa, really coming through the mix. And I think it's also interesting looking at this result, um, how confusing it still has, who is going to be the kind of more establishment friendly candidate. Mm. Now, up until this point, or at least for months on end, people very much had their eyes on Joe Biden. He, he's fallen into fourth place, which is pretty striking. Now it's 
probably the case that um, going forward into some of the primaries, particularly in places like Nevada and South Carolina, where Mayor Pete is very weak, he's polling in kind of single digits in those places. So maybe things will shift. But I think it's quite striking, given the fact that it's quite clear that many people within the Democratic establishment are doing everything they can to stop a Bernie Sanders candidacy, who that candidate is that they're going to try and coalesce behind. Yet there's so much confusion about that. I think reflected by, you know, some of the results we're seeing and also things like, you know, the New York Times endorsing both Amy Klobuchar <laughs> and Elizabeth Warren of a kind of non-endorsement of two people. So it's been a complete mess. It's been another gift to Donald Trump in a week that's been full of gifts to Donald Trump, which we'll probably get onto. But I think it's also fascinating that as well as just showing the kind of incompetence of a lot of people in the Democratic Party establishment, it's also their kind of weakness um, in the face of the internal threat as they see it from a candidate like Sanders. So yeah, it's been a shit show on various different levels it feels like yeah i think the failure to launch it of biden is is really really striking i mean for months people kind of expected a coronation of such i mean he is still leading nationally in yeah. the polls on on around 27 percent, but he is sounding increasingly incoherent and you could say he's having a number of senior moments he's always been gaff prone but it's really kind of got quite bad in the in the, in the last couple of months so he you know he's forgetting the name of Barack Obama, who he referred to as President My Boss. Ten years ago, he actually described Obama as the first African-American in the history of the United States, which was quite memorable. But, you know, at the Iowa State Fair, he said, we prefer truth over facts. And at a rally in New Hampshire, he reassured his audience saying, I want to be clear, I'm not going nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and so, the, and the, the Ballad of Corn Pop as well, that anyone that, should, should check out. If that, the Ballad of Corn Pop, yeah, with the, <laughs> this quite incoherent story about him meeting the head of a gang instead of calling the police and him having basically arming himself with a, a metal chain. <laughs> it's all very strange. It was from 2017, but it kind of emerged recently and played into this kind of image of Biden as this kind of bumbling idiot. Mm. Ella, what were your thoughts? I mean, one of the interesting things about the caucus was the turnout and Sean Collins mentions this in his piece, but I've seen it discussed elsewhere and that the numbers seem to be particularly low. Think about in 2008, it, there was around 240,000 voters turned out in Iowa um, and that has steadily shrunk and hasn't picked up since 2016. Mm. And I mean, that tells you that this strange situation or this unfortunate situation that the Democrats find themselves in, in which while the Republicans seem to have a clear route to how they're going to fight this election, the Democrats are still very much fighting amongst themselves. And, you know, Joe Biden hasn't managed to really galvanise any movement behind him that you would have expected. And perhaps as many young people haven't turned out to push for Bernie either. So it just kind of feels, it does feel very lacklustre. On top of that, obviously, the mess with the failing app and the count. I mean, imagine if this was the other side, there would be, you know, screams of Russia intervention. This would be a plot. This would, you know, it would be complete scandal. And the Democrats are kind of having to sort of shamefacedly sit on their hands and, and just deal with being embarrassed about this. So it's certainly a lesson for them. And obviously part of the problem is that Whatever they do after this, it was meant to be this moment through which one of the candidates was, especially someone like Bernie Sanders, was going to use as a big moment to push on the rest of his campaign. So this mm. could affect how things move forward. And for Trump, as Tom says, this is just such a gift because no matter how actually incompetent he is or actually politically unsound, 
the Democrats are displaying that even if it was just a technical mess up, they seem more incompetent than yeah. the buffoon in office. So, so the other news um, from American politics, of course, was the not very shocking <laughs> event that Trump was cleared in his impeachment trial. I mean, absolutely everyone knew this was going to happen. It's probably the most inevitable thing in the world. Mitt Romney being the only Republican yeah. to turn against Trump eventually. Tom, what are your thoughts? Well, it's completely backfired on the Democrats is I think the clear thing to take out of it. Again, it's split almost entirely with the exception of Mitt Romney along partisan lines, completely fits the Trumpist narrative that this is a kind of establishment democratic stitch up. And he's not wrong in many respects. This was weaponizing the process of impeachment to try and unseat him, or at the very least to try to just dredge up and remind people of many unsavory things about him as possible to try and stain him going into the election. I mean, Chuck Schumer said this pretty explicitly, he said we might not have impeached him, but there's always going to be an asterisk next to his name. But you look at the polling, that's quite clearly not panned out. The Gallup poll out this week suggested that Trump's at 49% approval rating. That's the highest of his presidency so far. Mm. He's obviously still incredibly divisive, but he's going into this election with a boost, which was entirely gifted to him by the Democrats. And I also think it's interesting as far as the kind of candidates on the Democratic side, who many of us thought might have been uh, more in contention so far, particularly Bernie Sanders, I think in relation to not just the impeachment stuff, but kind of just various different things across the week, it's just challenged the idea that maybe they, someone like him, who is also a populist, will actually be able to take the argument to him, partly because obviously his campaign is faltering a little bit. And as Ella said, and as Sean pointed out, you know, there's this, there's not the level of dynamism you would expect with a quote political revolution um, yeah. going into the candidacy so far. But I thought it was also interesting that people like AOC refused to go to the State of the Union address, which was also this week, as well as people like Rashida Tlaib, who's another high profile Bernie Sanders supporter, uh, making her own little protest whilst being in attendance. Rashida Tlaib famously saying, we're, we're going to impeach the motherfucker when she was running <laughs> originally. So again, being kind of very much associated with that. And I think just one thing that this week also kind of brought home a little bit is that um, Bernie in 2020 feels very different to Bernie in 2016. Yeah. Not necessarily him as a candidate, but kind of a lot of the nonsense that surrounds him. I think it's funny that the kind of attack line from the Democratic establishment has always been that it's the Bernie bros, it's these kind of un-PC millennial lads who patronise feminists at, at house parties. That's kind of like all the all the people who surround him. There's this kind of air of un-PC around him. If anything, I think the opposite is the truth is that even though Bernie Sanders says some very sensible things in relation to identity politics, has reflected that he's not that kind of, you know, insane liberal candidate, that he's yeah. someone with more scruples and more appeal as a relation to that. He does go into this race associated with a lot of kind of like DSA, so-called socialist idiocy flowing mm. around him. You know, people who do think Donald Trump is the incarnation of all evil and the people who are the sort of people who you could see at a DSA conference with blue hair complaining about gender language. There's a bit more of that going <laughs> on this time around. And I think that in the past week, it's just kind of made it feel that his candidacy, whilst it might have been particularly strong in 2016, it feels a lot weaker going into 2020 for various factors. Ella. And that's a shame because he was, uh, you know, he was always, for me, attractive because he was this kind of old school politician who wasn't going to get involved in that kind of new hype and had this particular line, got to get back to the basics, got to get back to inequality in the country, you know, th standard things that might not be particularly exciting. But for American politics it was this kind of straightforward way that you thought, all right, this guy's got some principles. And I think that 
due to the fact that he's had to realise that he's going to pick up most of his support from Generation C and they come with their own kind of prejudices in politics that he's probably going to have to play to. I mean, the really interesting thing from the the impeachment non-scandal, and that's really interesting, we're talking on Thursday, the UK papers, hardly any of them had it on their front pages Mm. this morning, so much of a non-story it was, was this case of Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney's speech was about how, and what he said was about how history was going to remember him as someone who spoke out Mm. that this was an important moment for him to speak his mind and it's really key because it's that kind of moralism that everyone watching what happened and all of trump's base believe to be true that this isn't actually about whether he did wrong this isn't about the fact this is about politicians and democrats grandstanding their morals over the idiots that support trump so you know it was really interesting watching Mitt Romney do that because you just think this is every single fear that every Trump voter has is that all of you are just using this as an excuse to really not oppose Trump but display your own moral greatness and your your moral betterness and so (laughs) the more that the Democrats okay putting aside Mitt Romney but especially the more that the Democrats go down this line of you know Nancy Pelosi tearing up the speech behind him when he's doing Mm. the State of the Union address all of this stuff and you just wish that someone would (laughs) talk in the ear of one of these Democrat advisors and say that the more that you condescend to voters by using this moralistic language and this moralistic approach rather than a political opposition you're going to strengthen Trump's campaign You're listening to the Spike podcast. Spike has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spike, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spike a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Veteran broadcaster Alistair Stewart was sacked last week by ITV News for his use of social media. His ousting is believed to be connected to him quoting Shakespeare's Measure for Measure at a black Twitter user. One line in the quote referred to an angry ape, though Stewart had previously quoted the same passage to respond to white Twitter users as well. Days later, it emerged that Katie Hopkins, an actual racist, had been suspended from Twitter. Ella, what do you make of this uh, past weeks of sackings and suspensions over social media? Well, it's interesting that the two have happened at the same time because one, you might expect in the form of Katie Hopkins, mm. um, and it's harder to argue with people about her and the basis of arguing for her free speech because she's so disgusting and is provocative and, you know, sort of in some ways looks to be banned. But then that happens around about the same time as the veteran presenter Alistair Stewart gets banned for something really most sensible people think is completely innocuous. Was actually very helpful for those of us who want to argue for free speech because the treatment is the same. Mm. And the shocking thing about Alistair Stewart and the great example of it is that it was completely taken out of context. So Mm. Katie Hopkins is in a context of her being a professional, awful person. That's Mm. her modus operandi is to offend people. Whereas the Alistair Stewart incident was, there was some talk about him, you know, actually trying to condescend to the person by using Shakespeare. But the idea that this was racist was crazy and you had people like the BBC presenter Edward Dadu coming out and saying in order to fight racism we have to absolutely not 
call things that are not racist, racist mm. and defended Alice Stewart in this brilliant way. The lesson is that if you think that banning Alistair Stewart and getting him sacked and the way that he was treated in that censorious fashion is wrong, then it's the same for Katie Hopkins. The two are similar because if you start making divisions and exceptions and drawing lines when it comes to freedom of speech, then you open the door for anything really to be considered offensive. And if you think what happened to Alistair Stewart is crazy, then you also have to defend the free speech of Katie Hopkins. Tom. I think the Alistair Stewart thing was such a remarkable um, indication of how possibly the biggest thing that we're up against in relation to freedom of speech at the moment is institutional cowardice. Mm. No one could possibly think that this bloke is a racist. No one fair-minded looking at that Twitter exchange could assume that he used that passage involving the phrase, what is it, angry ape, as it turned out to be directed towards a uh, black person who was he was in this Twitter argument with, that he was intending to demean this person, racially speaking, by Mm. suggesting that. The flood of well wishes and defences for him that were coming out from various of his colleagues of various different backgrounds and the fact that it just felt like ITV had folded at the first sign of trouble in relation to all of this is absolutely striking. No one really believes this man is a racist and yet yeah. he's still lost his job for um, allegedly making kind of racist comments and it's it's really quite striking how quickly that happened. I think the context of the Katie Hopkins thing going on as well in the background, I know it's slightly different you've got someone who was sacked after kind of Twitter mob pressure and you've got someone who was kicked off of Twitter slightly different situations you might say but I think they still kind of remind us that as Ella was saying as well you know you need to kind of defend free speech across the board now yeah. um, not to kind of victim blame in relation to Alistair Stewart here but I thought it was interesting that Trevor Phillips had a piece in I think it was the Mail on Sunday talking about their days together in the NUS in the 1970s and how Alistair Stewart first of all we're just making the point that he was always involved in fighting racism and one of the things they did together was um, they were part of the broader group of students who brought in the no no platform for fascist policy Mm. um, which as many people will know long-standing NUS policy not to um, provide a platform or to share platforms with members of the far right and racists etc and we've always made the argument that the problem with no platform the reason you're seeing campus being so crazy now is because as soon as you concede the principle on freedom of speech it is only going to spread and spread Um, now these are slightly different contexts as we know but i think it is still a kind of interesting reminder of the fact that if you don't defend free speech in certain situations in certain contexts and for everyone and then it's only gonna be a matter of time until you find censorship reaching towards you now that's not to blame alistair stewart in relation to Mm. all of this but i think it just demonstrates the fact that um, unless you have a robust free speech culture across the board um, it makes it more difficult to make the argument and it just becomes a situation of sticking up for the free speech of people you happen to like um, which is always going to be a weak defense And I think one important thing in relation to Casey Hopkins is that the word racist is thrown around so often, like almost candy, where, you know, Alistair Stewart is accused of racism. It's racist to vote for Brexit. It's racist to dislike Princess Meghan Markle. And then you have Katie Hopkins, who compares Muslim children to retards and says that they like to rape their mothers, mm-hmm. and who has not only actually used racist speech, but has done some quite racist actions. She's been on boats out in the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. trying to make it difficult for charities to rescue migrants. I mean, this is an abominable racist woman. And yet at the same time, we have to defend that speech because you know as as you guys both made the point you know free speech is for everyone or it's for no one at all but i i do worry that we you know do we not even recognize racism when we see it anymore because how do we see the wood through the trees when the word is used so often and so you know so promiscuously 
Well, actually, it's interesting, Imran Ahmed, who's the CEO for the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, who with Rachel Riley teamed up to get Hopkins banned off Twitter. The statement he put out had this phrase in it that they were pleased about the action taken by Twitter against the identity-based hate actor, Katie Hopkins. Mm. I think that she is racist to her core. I think you'd probably have to be quite a twisted person to be doing this sort of cynically. But she is an actor. She is. A, she performs this kind of thing. Her desire mm. is to get a reaction, and yeah. I can guarantee you that she is delighted that she's been banned. Because for someone like her, who's involved in her whole thing, is trying to get a reaction. A reaction on this scale is is something that she can galvanise. She can now claim to be having been banned from Twitter. It gives her a kind of a glamour. Funny enough, censoring her gives her a voice that she really does not deserve. Well, they, they did that very explicitly. So the, the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, basically. Basically, once they'd, you know, doing their victory lap, having had her mm. censored, they basically posted a thread of her most racist tweets. Yeah. And, you know, drawing attention very explicitly to what she had said. And the irony is, if this is so offensive that you have to ban her, why are you then posting it again? Exactly. The, exactly. The, this is where the, the logic doesn't match up. If she is so offensive that you have to ban her, then the idea that you would put out her tweets or retweet her saying, this is disgusting and racist, I condemn it. Just ignore her. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. leave I want to share alone. all the, this disgusting <laughs> hatred with my followers. And it's a reflex you see time and time again, even when, you know, complete nobodies tweet absolutely horrendous thing at individuals, the desire to kind of quote tweet it and show the world, it seems mm. to me to be so, so incredibly counterproductive. I really agree with what Ella just said in relation to Katie Hopkins is a really fascinating case because she is a creature of our outrage culture. She yeah. is on some level a monster made by outrage culture. Now I completely agree. It doesn't change the fact that she has said some absolutely horrendous vile racist things and it takes a certain type of person, whether they're being completely sincere or not to feel comfortable saying those kinds of things still calls her morals into question. Yeah. But at the same time, it's quite clear that she is someone who's become increasingly extremely because she recognised there was profile in it, that outrage was something that would gift her more notoriety and that there was plenty of outrage about, you know, from when she was just at the more kind of more extreme end of the right-wing columnist kind of group to when she became more and more extreme, started hanging Mm. around with people like Tommy Robinson, all that kind of stuff. She has been constantly given a boost by the outsized reaction to her. And I think what people really need to remember as well is that given, you know, with the Alistair Stewart case in mind or other free speech battles that we're thinking about at the moment, it's so important that we remember that the defence of free speech can't be partial. You know, there is a little bit of a worrying thing at the moment where there are kind of, shall we say, amiable targets of censorship and unamiable targets of censorship and people kind of apportion how interested they are in those cases on that basis. Yeah. Now, it's worth pointing out, of course, you've got, um, and Brendan makes a point in his article this week, that if you don't defend people like Katie Hopkins' right to say hateful things on the internet, which are genuinely hateful, then you're also completely surrendering the right to defend people who aren't necessarily saying hateful things as far as you're concerned, but could be people like Megan Murphy, the Canadian feminist, kicked off of Twitter forever for misgendering someone, and that's mm. someone being Jessica Yaniv, who as anyone knows anything about Yaniv will um, know that misgendering that individual is, should be um, the least of the punishment <laughs> that person deserves. So... This is why it's so important to defend this across the board, because if you're a radical feminist who is concerned about quote-unquote transphobic feminists being censored and you've got nothing to say about Katie Hopkins, then you've really got to have a word with yourself because it's become all the more clear that the uh, more we've conceded on that principle, the more the bar has just gotten lower and lower. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? 
It really helps new listeners find the show. A growing number of liberal white women are paying $2,500 to take part in an initiative called Race to Dinner. Race to Dinner allows them to learn how racist they are. It's run by activists Syra Rao and Regina Jackson, who lead a group of women in a frank discussion about race, pulling up each of the guests on their lapses into white supremacy. Attendees are also required to read White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo before they meet. Rao and Jackson think that white liberal women are the best target for their activism. There are no Trump voters allowed, and white men, even the liberal ones, are considered to be a lost cause as well. <laughs> Tom, <laughs> what do you make of this? I thought it was absolutely mad. I'm sure I wasn't the only one who read the um, Guardian feature on these women and their dinners um, <laughs> who didn't have to kind of double take and work out if it was the 1st of April or if yeah. you were actually on the right website and all the rest of it because it just seemed so incredibly comical. You know, all of these different details in the in the piece, which I encourage anyone to read if you've got a moment, where you've got, again, quite well-meaning white women, you know, saying things like, you know, I do want to hire more people of colour, but then I don't want to be a a white saviour and then kind of trailing <laughs> off. Just sounds like an absolutely hilarious kind of carnival of, of um, white guilt being exploited for economic gain. Yeah, but I think what it's the, fantastic grift, <laughs> if nothing else. Well done to them on some level. But <laughs> the thing I think it really demonstrated, um, especially in terms of this um, ludicrous justification they have for it, which is the fact that white liberal women are the, you know, the best means through which to challenge white supremacy for some reason. I think what it reminds us is that um, identity politics is primarily a rich white person's game. Yeah. Um, it's who it is mainly aimed at and it's who it mainly appeals to. You know, you see this in relation to some of even the survey data, you know, more in common had that big survey out, what was mm. it, last year, which found that two of the biggest predictors for support for political correctness were income and education levels. So if you're quite well off and well educated, you tended to buy into a lot of this stuff. Similarly, that white people were more likely than other racial groups to um, support political correctness. And you really see that play out here. And I think that the thing that it indicates is the fact that identity politics, even though people like to dress it up as anti-racist politics or pro-equality politics or whatever, is that it fundamentally doesn't appeal to a lot of the groups it seeks to speak for and to represent for yeah. the very simple reason that it completely disempowers those people. It's fundamentally aimed at just guilty, rich white people who feel that this is a kind of way of kind of assuaging their guilt by talking about about their privilege and all the rest of it. It's fundamentally, it's just, in some respects, just plays to them and their own kind of neuroses mm. rather than actually real issues um, in society. And the fact that there are these dinners where people can, um, you know, have that experience at the cost of two and a half thousand dollars, I think is a perfect example of that, really. Ella? Well, it's an extreme example, but the thing that I thought of when I read about it was this is happening all over the place. If you think about the a few years ago at universities in the UK, there was this big push to start compulsory consent classes mm. for students, which was basically women, but more importantly, men going to young men, going to classes to be told how they were inherently predilected towards rape and how they had to mm. train themselves to not be an awful assaulter, basically. And look at things like decolonizing the curriculum in universities, yeah. which is essentially you paying a lot of money to go on a course to be told how you were part of a culture that and your idea of a canon or any sense of the classics or history is about your inherent racism and how that's put on other people. So this kind of trend to self-flagellate, especially if you are a white man, but also if you're a white woman uh, and straight even worse, is is happening all over the place. But it's, there's actually a really serious 
thing underlying it, which is that it's such a terribly dystopian moment if we have a society in which people have to be careful about not only their what they say, but their subconscious feelings. Yeah. I mean, for any kind of politics, progressive politics to move forward, you have to allow people to make mistakes, which means you have to allow people to say things like... Um, you know, where are you from? Or mm. why is your mm. hair like that? Or, you know, do you fancy men? Or whatever it is in relation to any of these things that are supposedly sins in the world of identity politics. How is anyone supposed to learn anything? And it's also, I would be fascinated to find out who these two individuals who are giving these classes think they're representing. Yeah. So I guarantee you they don't represent all black women. And I certainly guarantee you that they have no sense of what most black women's ordinary lives are. There's a huge class element to all of this that is, I find particularly disgusting and more offensive actually than anything that, uh, you know, any kind of ridiculous semi-racist anti-woke thing a white liberal might come out with. Well, it was it was very funny because actually it came up in the piece that someone had to remind uh, Sire Rao of her of her class privilege. <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the most disturbing parts of the piece is where the women are asked to name a racist thought that they've had recently or a racist thing that they've done, yeah. and one of the poor women couldn't name something, and so that kind of persuaded her to effectively write a racism journal (laughs) you know she really had to will some racist thoughts Mm. out of herself Mm. and i mean not only does that just point to the entire craziness Mm. of this but you know one of the disturbing things is the way that say white privilege has has become a form of original sin yeah it's very religious nobody can escape from it is it is a yeah quasi-religious you can you know absolve your sin only by confessing only by acknowledging your privilege and even then perhaps you haven't got rid of it Mm. but it's also it's completely turned around the wrong ways the you know there is a sense in which yes as a white person i will never experience what it's like to have a racist slogan put against me because Mm. it's not going to happen to me in the same way that it might happen to my black friend but rather than saying i have to go around and apologize for that not happening to me and the privilege in that we should be arguing that it should never happen to my black friend exactly and that's that's the kind of in actually the whole concept of white privilege shows how deeply narcissistic Mm, white liberals are because it's all about them and it's never about it's no longer about the oppression of black and ethnic minorities it's all about the guilt and the privilege of white people yeah, so how do white people feel about what it? a yeah. nightmare <laughs> and, and it's as well as being narcissistic it's incredibly paternalistic as well mm. because i think this kind of new wave of identity politics and supposed anti-racist politics that things that really talk heavily about ideas of white supremacy in an almost kind of cosmic sense you know it's this thing that runs through our language our everyday yeah. interaction that even when you can't see it, you know, the chains of it are still there and binding people and all the rest of it. What's fascinating about all of that is if, if you perceive the problem to be that totalizing, it effectively hands all the agency to, you know, white liberal women or well-off yeah. white people to change their ways so as to bring about kind of change in society. It's incredibly disempowering to the groups in particular who previously would have been seen at the centre of kind of anti-racist campaigns alongside allies of various different backgrounds. You know, the idea that you're changing society together, it's not that you're 
basically just kind of asking white people to change their ways so that society can get better for yeah. everyone else. It's a, it's a really unpleasant dynamic to a lot of it. It's incredibly disempowering. I think the class thing, and this is not necessarily in relation to these particular women who I don't know beyond the quotes <laughs> in this piece, the liberal white women, but I think the class thing in relation to wokeness and identity politics is also quite significant because it's quite clear that the reason that there is this class distinction, say, in relation to white people, you have kind of well-off white people who are well into their identity politics and not so well-off white people who tend to be quite irritated and frustrated by all of the discussions around white privilege, etc. I think is really quite striking. First of all, because it's quite clear that so many of the claims of wokeness just completely kind of crash on the rocks of, to use one of their phrases, the lived experience of, you know, working class mm. white people. The idea that the, as some people have sincerely suggested recently, that say a white homeless person enjoys white privilege is obviously <laughs> ridiculous yeah. to anyone who has seen that. But at the same time, I think what's quite um, striking, and again, I'm not bringing in these particular women in this case as well, is that for kind of white, well-off people, identity politics also provides a means through which they can kind of legitimise and actually indulge in class prejudice. Yeah. Because the distinction is you as an educated person, you as someone who can afford one of these dinners, you as someone who has read that white fragility book and understands the issues, is that it's a way that you distinguish yourself from the other lot, you know, from the people who aren't as switched on, from the people who who are ignorant and therefore mm. racist. And so it's the class element to woke politics, I think, is really significant, not just in terms of why it appeals to well-off white women, but also why it definitely doesn't appeal to not-so-well-off white people, which is so clear that so much of this, despite the fact there's all this talk about privilege, it's, it's often a means through which genuine privilege kind of expresses itself. And that was what Jon Snow was getting at, to use a British example, when he said, I've never seen so many white people in one place talking about Brexit voters. He's obviously seen more white people at a Remain march. He's probably seen more white people at Glastonbury, um, at Wimbledon or any of the other high society mm. events he goes to. Mm. But it's those white people. It racialises poor people in a really kind of nasty way. And yeah, as you said, legitimises a kind of class hatred of them. And the irony is that certainly in the UK, among the working class, people from different backgrounds, from maybe from different countries, work shoulder to shoulder, cheek to cheek, and generally get along much mm. better. There yeah. isn't, there is much less of a sense of difference and hostility. Yes, people might say clumsy things. Yes, people might use words that are outdated. People might sometimes be quite offensive and need to come up to speed with what are the right ways to talk to people. But in general, the sentiment is much more of well, we're in this together kind mm. of thing. There is a genuine solidarity around, you know, like my father working with Romania on the one hand and someone from Nigeria on the other hand and there being the sense of no difference between them the difference comes into like Tom said when you have these members of the educated class liberals upper middle class women for in this case who want actually cling to the idea of there being different because mm. they want to celebrate that they want to learn about it rather than actually saying the you know this terribly controversial thing that you can't say anymore which is I don't see color there's no difference between us You've been listening to the Spiked podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.